Hi, I'm Jamie Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Ellen Colster, Design Principal at IBMQ. International Business Machines Corporation, or IBM, is an American multinational information technology company that's headquartered in New York with operations in over 170 countries. In 2016, IBM launched the IBMQ Experience, which is an online platform that gives the general public access to a set of IBM's cloud-based quantum computing. Ellen has hosted lectures at the University of Texas on design for artificial intelligence and has served in senior roles on both the agency and services side for companies including JWT, Young and Rubicon, Leo Burnett, and BrainJuicer. Ellen, thanks for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about your background. This is kind of helpful for us because it kind of level sets and gives us a little bit of context mm -hmm. of who you are. Yeah, always a great question. So, you know, I started life uh, in the agency environment uh, as a strategic planner. And so kind of came up through that world of account planning. I like to say it came over from the Mayflower, you know, <laughs> sometime in the 80s totally. <laughs> from, from, from the British and uh, kind of grew up in that culture where it was very much about understanding customers and working with them and doing the research yourself so that you could translate that into creative strategy for communications, right? So um, kind of started in that world and, and did that for quite a while and then felt like over time, kind of the balance of the amount of research that was getting conducted shifted over to clients themselves and they were taking on more of that in, in their own realms and agencies were doing a little bit less of that. And so I found it very attractive to move into the realm of market research, where I could spend all my time conduct, conducting research, which is my favorite thing. And that's when I kind of moved into that world and, and into Brain Juicer, uh, now known as System One. Um, and, and I liked that environment as well, because we did a lot of really innovative types of research using technology. So it kind of combined these two worlds that I've been playing in, especially most recently. We did a lot of online ethnography and also online communities. So you had a lot of uh, tools to use and have consumers come with you for weeks and months in some cases uh, as they work through different experiences with you so that you could maximize products. And it was really fun, whether it was a long-term engagement, um, working with them on their relationship to cookies and unboxing experiences or, you know, how they, how they selected their phone service and all the kind of fun that went along with that. So did that for a few years and then had this interesting opportunity where someone said, hey, IBM is looking for people with deep research experience in the, we call it user research and technology, um, looking for that for Watson, specifically in the realm of AI as they kind of build up that team because Watson was new three years ago and was, was just getting started, especially with the design team. And that, that's the group that creates the user interface and all of the tooling that our customers use to create AI themselves. And so um, I decided to go talk to them, and it was a really great kind of experience. And I ended up there in a completely different realm, uh, total technology, business-to-business, -business, enterprise environment, but um, in a completely new and exciting space. And I was very uh, kind of in energized by that. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up making my way to IBM through some of the other, er other areas. Where did you grow up as a kid? 
I grew up in Houston, Texas, of all places. So I had actually spent my career moving around. I had worked in San Francisco and Chicago and Boston and all these other places uh, and then decided to come back to Texas and work in Austin at an agency and kind of came back to my roots here. And I really love Texas because it's kind of a, a, an amalgamation of a lot of things in this one giant state. You've got big corporations, you've got, you know, rural areas, you've got, you know, tech corridors in Austin, agencies in Dallas. So it's just a lot offered here. But yeah, I grew up in Texas and, and decided to come back to the to the Wild West, if you will. So I did some digging in preparation for this episode. In 2015 on LinkedIn, you published a uh, long form blog titled Customers as Mentors. And you opened with this I think probably one of the best quotes I've ever heard, and I've never heard it before, which is pretty unusual. Um, <laughs> and it is, the purpose of business is to create a customer who creates customers. And I'm like, that is exactly right. So, you know, I know you recently spoke in Austin at, at um, IIEX, and then you, know, you were mm. going to be speaking at the next conference coming up in Chicago on June 12th and 13th. What are some of your favorite examples of how AI is helping us better create customer advocates? Well, it's an, that's an interesting question. And part of kind of my point in that blog was that it's really great when companies or could companies start to look at their own customers as potential mentors for new customers. As in, you've got all these customers you have a relationship with who've been through the journey of adopting your product, especially in categories where those products can be, there can be a lot of work to adopting them and technology being a space very much like that. So you, you pair them up with brand new customers, right? And kind of get them started together. And wouldn't that be a great thing to do? And I think some companies have looked into that, but I think it's still right for um, for growth. So it's interesting that when you bring AI into that, because AI, obviously, as a machine, has a different perspective, if you will. Now, it's a human-generated perspective because we make these machines right now. But the role that I think AI can play in that is almost becoming that mentor itself, because you're seeing that in a lot of the spaces where AI comes in, in the chatbot space or the conversational system space, where let's say you know, it's midnight and for whatever reason you've decided to download that new piece of software and you're not sure how to do it and you need help, right? And, and that's the time when you may turn to a machine, an a AI who can help you get through that process and, and go through that journey of downloading that software correctly. So it ends up creating machine mentors where um, what I was talking about were human mentors, but you end up having these machine mentors and they can be as useful and helpful because they're available 24-7. They Ideally, if it's done well, they know the questions you're going to ask. That doesn't always happen right now. But uh, it's kind of the vision. The vision is to be able to get the help when you need it, how you need it. Who do you, I know you're going to be a little bit biased here, but who, who do you see in the space as do, leveraging AI for driving customer experience particularly well? Well, you know, that that's a great question. I am biased, and, and it's some of the <laughs> folks that we've worked with, I will say, and, and, and I was using that example of um, downloading software, I would say Autodesk. 
um, which they are the company that make AutoCAD and all those kind of that software that is uh, that helps architects and a lot of people that are they're doing a lot of rendering. They have a very advanced system that allows you to do a lot of things and get a lot of answers directly through that system. And they've worked a, long and hard to get a system that's very thoughtful, that's very focused on the key questions that customers need and is able to really help them. Now, it's a different focus in market research, right? In many cases, we're not always looking at AI right now as being a direct interface to us. It's more that it's a tool to help us in predictive analytics or in insights in engines kind of understand a lot of large scale data if you're a market researcher, right? Um, at this point, we're not using bots to field for us. <laughs> maybe somebody is, maybe somebody's trying, but I think we still want to be the one asking the questions. Obviously, you could argue that um, surveys uh, are an automated form of that, but it's a different type of research data collection. But, you know, at, the, at this point, I think AI is, is, is kind of in the realm of, of being a tool in market research. And, and I would say it's, it's definitely the best place for it to be right now. You know, if you think if we pull back what quant research is, which is, you know, I'm I spent about maybe a third of my career doing qual uh, in the balance mm-hmm. quant. Research is really just a conversation at scale, right? I mean, you don't need to do research mm-hmm. if you only have one customer because you're talking to that customer, hopefully. <laughs> uh, but as soon as you're IBM, it's like, well, you know, we've got a lot of customers. We can't we can't actually understand customer sentiment or or put the customer in the center of the conversation unless we actually conduct research, right? And 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 facilitate that conversation. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about AI to me is, you know, and you probably saw this at IAEX, there's a lot more companies that are entering into market research that are leveraging AI for qual, which is allowing bigger base sizes to be done than, than historically possible. And you think about like, you know, my career, I started doing, this is way, this is, you know, in the 90s, late 90s, mid 90s. Um, we would do things like collages, right? You've probably mm-hmm. done these kinds of projects. Yep. And, and then, you know, we would basically try to put together the respondent collages in a master collage, which is really funny if you knew my art. <laughs> but it was never, I never got a repeat customer on that one. I don't necessarily <laughs> think I delighted customers there. But, but uh, you know, my, my point is that we're able to actually conduct these kinds of exercises and then the machine put them together, the AI put them together in a way that's actually meaningful and connects to the audience. Are you seeing that sort of application in market research as a, as a, you know, looking forward? Is that one of the growth areas? Well, it is. I, you know, it's funny that the presentation I made at IIEX was actually around um, caution with AI. <laughs> oh, interesting. Understanding where the models are at this stage of the game. It's not to say that, as I said, you can't use them or have them be a part of products and services that, that can be very helpful. But I, I've spent the last three years watching our customers build AI into their own systems and seeing the tremendous amount of work it takes to, to build a really solid, stable model that is reliable, that is um, as balanced as possible. I mean, bias is what it is, so it, it's going to exist, but you can get as close as you can. And it's, it's a tremendous amount of effort and work. It's not something you stand up quickly. It also requires, in some cases, hundreds of thousands to millions of data points for something to be really reliable. Think about if you start as a child 
and you don't really know the difference between, uh, you know, a cupcake and I don't know, um, you know, your dog, you're not, you're not really familiar as a little kid, but you start to see that thing over and over and over and over all these elements. And that's how you learn. Well, AI is the same way. And so you can't expect after, in some cases, five times an image comes up that AI can correctly identify every time that it's a Porsche. There are so many elements to a Porsche to get it right, you know, from the, the, the shape of it, to the texture, to the colors, to the different elements that are on the vehicle, to the logo. It's got to pick apart all those things, put it back together and identify that as a Porsche. And that's, uh, that's kind of the value or, or the promise of neural networks, right? But it takes a lot of work for a model to get that right. And so I was illuminating at that conference kind of the under the hood, how the sausage is made, which is what I'll be doing part, partly at next too, just to arm market researchers with an understanding that I think the smart move right now is to use AI, but use it with, cautious, with caution and, and double check what you're getting. Don't expect that it's a black box that magically spits out the right answer or that its first pass of data is going to be better than what you could do. It may not be. And um, it, it takes a while for it to learn from other people to run enough times to get things right. And we're at, at the point where you, you just have to make sure that your own human intelligence is a part of the mix. Um, it's not magic. It is very much kind of um, augmented intelligence, which is what we like to say at IBM. It's going to add to what you're doing, but it's not at this stage going to replace you or or kind of um, what you're able to do. Yeah, I just had a conversation yesterday with the um, Aji Kosh, the head of insights, and um, oh gosh, he had a lot of titles. Uh, <laughs> anyway, the head of insights for B Sky B. In, in our conversation, and he finished his PhD talking about machine learning, the, one of the things that he identified in his, going through his thesis, and I think it was actually core to it, is that we, AI in and of itself can create some, can reinforce biases that we have, maybe even a gender bias, um, if, because it's recognizing these patterns and then basically playing off of the pattern you know, the pattern recognition. So gone unfettered, it actually could, you know, not, not have the outcome, whether it's social or otherwise that, that we might want, meaning that we really got to pay attention to the models and, you know, the actual implications of the, of what the machines are telling us. Yeah. You know, you, you play in right into an example I gave at that presentation, which was a study that was done um, in 2015, around Google search, Google search is a great example of AI kind of in use in, in a, and, and with a large trained model, like all of us, when we do search are training that model, right? And this isn't a dig on Google, because in fact, the way this worked out made perfect sense with what you're saying. But uh, within their search, a university looked to see that whenever someone searched on CEO, they focused on this one instance, when, when you searched on CEO, in 2015, 27% of the CEOs globally were female, but yet when you searched on CEO in Google, uh, female CEOs only came up 11% of the time, which would tell you that, oh, hey, your model's biased. Now, Google rightfully came back and said, hey, this is based on what people are putting out, you know, whether it's, a, whether it's ads, whether it's articles, whatever images they're using, that's where um, this is pulling from. And the university came back, I believe it was a Washington university, came back and said, well, that may be true, but we also believe that people are, whatever people are clicking on is training your model. So if people, you know, more than, you know, only 11% of the time, I should say, are clicking on female images, then the model thinks that 
that's the amount of time people want to see female CEO images, right? And it will continue to underrepresent. So it's exactly the point that you made. And it's unintentional bias. I mean, that's the other thing. I've, I've heard a lot of discussion around, you know, this idea that, that machines will uh, be able to be unbiased because they're machines and they'll, they'll avoid the unconscious bias that humans have. I was like, well, no, actually humans are a part of that training process. And so that unconscious bias was absolutely present in that example. Nobody was consciously, I believe, trying to say, I'm going to search every time on males and change this model. No, it just happened to be that that's right. the way it went. And now you have got bias in that model. And it's the other reason I, I, I say to always double check you know, what kind of models companies are working with, because how much work are they doing? To, to troubleshoot these kind of issues. Are they really looking back at their models and saying, oh, we know, we know the types of people that are using our software, whatever we're offering that has AI in it. And so we're going to go back and, and double check and see how that's augmenting our model. Because AI models are never done. You don't create one and walk away. You are constantly working on it and seeing how it changes because it's, it's a very constantly changing amorphous thing. So yeah, that's where I, I kind of get on my soapbox about how to, how to use it. I still believe it has tremendous promise and it will always have tremendous promise, but you, you want to make sure and, and use your own intelligence in all of this as well. And don't underestimate your own intuition at certain points. You think there's some like overlap between, cause we've moved away from the institutional tracker. I mean, not like wholesale, but that's become a smaller and smaller piece of the corporate budget. You know what I'm talking about, right? The quarter million yes. dollar or million dollar. Okay. And, yeah, yeah. I've worked with right. a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, those are kind of going away. But now at the same time, you know, you're really, what you're talking about, and I haven't heard it cast cast exactly like that, but, you know, these machine learning AI, AI systems, they are in a lot of ways uncovering, you know, the direction of the consumer, which is a which is really one of the big intents of measurement, right, from uh, the, the trackers. Are you, do you think there's some an, an analogy there? Potentially. I mean, you know, depending on how people are interacting with AI and the tracker and who is the, who's answering the questions, I think there will always be an opportunity to double check what you're getting back as a result of that, right? I mean, because it AI is influenced, it, it, different than a survey, right, without AI in it, where there's, a, there's an answer, you click on it, and it's done. AI is always training. Mm. And because it's always training, yes, things can change. Right. And so you're just going to want to know how that might change. So sure, it, it's certainly something to keep an eye on, for sure. I think it's a bad idea now that I hear you answer that question. Okay, so... How can modern insight pros use AI? With caution. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I say that because, um, again, I believe there's a lot of value. Like I said, where I get most excited in, in market research is with predictive analytics. I think there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity. We always struggled with, you know, what was it, market media modeling. We're always trying to model things to understand what people were going to be doing. And we never had a really great way to at least get an idea of where people were headed. And predictive analytics, especially where AI can aggregate a ton of data, look across many things and start to make connections will be invaluable. And I think we'll get a much more accurate understanding of um, what could be happening if we were to run, you know, certain media mixes. What do we think the outcomes could be? Um, I think that that's where it's got a, a tremendous amount of promise, and I'd be very excited to see how that moves forward. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I did a fair amount of modeling in my early career and, you know, leveraging you know, the, the traditional, the way that I was taught to do it, which is to say there's lots of ways to do it, right, is you find it, you, know, you ask a question in your survey, which is something like um, probability of purchasing a TV. And then that level sets against actual TV purchases over that period of time. And so it kind of gives you a baseline and then you ask another question similar to that, but about a new product that your, your customer's interested in, you know, uh, measuring and then, you know, perform a regression. And then all of a sudden you've got this, you know, or that or a Van Westendorp or some other kind of methodology that's leveraged in order to come up with a predictive, well, Van Westendorp is a little bit different, but anyway, um, mm -hmm. you know, my, my, my broader point is. Do you see marketing research as a discipline starting to use and leverage AI um, in order to do these market predictive uh, models versus the traditional kind of stats, uh, old school stats point of view? I would see it as probably being more valuable in that space for sure. Mm. Um, I, you know, I mean, God, we, we worked on so many regression models and I still couldn't tell you if I really knew <laughs> if, <laughs> if any of that was going to play out, you know, um, it was just, it was hard. And, you know, what's that famous, um, quote of, you know, I, um, I, I, oh gosh, I'm not going to get this right. Something about, I, I know, I half of my advertising works. I just don't know which half, you know, <laughs> right. it's like you're, and you're then we, constantly. And then we categorize that half. We don't know underneath branding. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> and and I think does. it's, and it has, it's, and it's, it's never going to be, I think a completely exact science. I think predicting behaviors very hard, but you know, statistically it still wasn't quite enough of an indicator of what was really happening out there. AI has the ability to look at a lot of things. And because it can also look at unstructured data, you have this unique opportunity where it could look across more than just the statistics, right? Now it can look across conversations and different things that can be fed into the whole pie and try to, to, to get a better understanding of what could potentially happen. That's where AI's promise has always been and that it, it, it is now have so much more data to draw from to try and find these answers um, to very complicated questions. So if you pull back, for, I mean, AI is part of the toolkit, right? And let's say that you're entering into the insights role inside of an organization, uh, marketing research or some other, some other way. Well, actually, let's focus on market research. Would you, what, what skills do you think that person should be cultivating in order to be success, to successfully drive insights inside of the, inside of the firm, basically informing the executive level business decisions? Yeah. I, you know, there's, there's a lot of different things. So the first one that I, I'll just go with the first one that came to mind because it's one I constantly run up against, which is flexibility. Um, I think you have to be willing to, um, kind of roll with what comes along, not only with all of the changing technology and the different things that come up, but it, it can be very difficult to leave sometimes your opinions at the door and say, okay, let me kind of look at this a little bit differently. Insights, when you get to the executive level too, they, they need to be pretty battle tested, right? Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you feel pretty, pretty good about them, which means you have to at some point vet them in various different ways to know that you have something collectively 
that you feel is is going to stand the test of time, especially in the enterprise where big, big, big decisions get made, right? Mm. And so you have to be flexible in the tools you use and the kind of data you're looking at. You have to be willing to look across a whole bunch of different types of data, trying different methods. I, I don't think you can do plug and play anymore. I mean, I think it, back to your point about all of those um, longitudinal studies and all those tracking studies, it was like, there was one way to do it, right? Mm. And you did that wow. every time and you reported that number at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. And now there's so much innovation and change. I think um, staying on top of it is challenging, but I think also being willing to be flexible and reinvent at various times is, is going to be is going to be a really important skill set. I'm also going to go back to, and this this kind of feeds into flexibility, but creativity is also super important. And and it's a funny thing because I think what really helps that is to be able to draw from things that aren't at all related to what you're doing or even in some cases your domain, right? It's looking out at what completely different companies or, or different competitors are doing or even people completely outside of your, like I said, the, the industry that you're in and trying to see how you can maybe utilize some of those elements in, in what you're doing to try and come up with new ways to think about things. I mean, it's just such a – every industry is getting so incredibly competitive certainly saturated with a lot of known insights, like getting to something new and different. It's just requiring a, a whole other level of flexibility and creativity and inventiveness that you're just constantly having to hone. And it's not easy to do because you'll get in myopic into your workflow and then you look up and go, wow, when was the last time I even read anything on a new right. technique in this area? Right. But <laughs> it's something to keep in mind. <laughs> you know, this is such an interesting point to me because I, when I started my career, it was adequate, so it used to be the case, that it was adequate to conduct a consumer survey and then analyze PowerPoint and then Storytel, right? But mm -hmm. but it was all in the context of that study. Now it feels like that's wildly inadequate, right? You need to really hone in on providing the context, market, business, uh, social, whatever, of that particular insight because the context informs so much of the implication of of the data. And so one of the things that I'm I'm seeing more and more is in in research reports is not just the you know maybe 25% is spent on the actual stated and a lot more of it is spent on on both the setup and the context and then also the um, implications at the business level. So it's almost like we're moving a little bit broader and then also going deeper with the insights. Wow. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned that because context is a big, big thing with me. Um, <laughs> I completely agree. It's, it's telling stories and it's telling stories with the details where you can really start to see what's happening. And I think in on the side of technology, especially with usability, there was has been a tendency towards scores and just kind of very almost quant-like representation of the learning and I've, I've pushed to put a lot more context even around that kind of thing. Just because somebody's navigating through a website doesn't mean there's not a lot of interesting things, especially if you're sitting there watching them, that they can tell you about their thought process or why on that day they ended up in certain parts of the experience, you know. And that is where it gets interesting. It's also true that your insights are better remembered with context. Without context, they are... 
somebody wants that, you know, <laughs> and, totally. and then, and, but, but when you can go back and replay a story to somebody else about the context of why they want it, it gets institutionalized, it gets internalized, it gets retold. And it's that whole, you know, um, you know, fireside chat, uh, yeah. kind of, uh, phenomenon. Right. And so I'm a big believer in context. I, I would almost say that context is 90% of it. Right. And I completely agree with your point. What I described is actually incorporating a lot more data, really, into the narrative that you build out. But we also, the master, you know, storyteller, they're doing that. But now they're actually like the content on the slides and the actual story that they tell is is retellable. So it's actually a hell of a lot less mm -hmm. content that winds up getting displayed, uh, and the story is profoundly simplified to its core essence. So it's really interesting. Like it's such a harder, it's a much harder job today than it was before. I think. Um, and which yes. is one of the reasons we have to leverage the, any tools that we can in order to help us. Yes. And that's where, again, unstructured data comes in, right? right. All of that kind of conversation, which, you know, it, it, it's interesting how AI will be able to help us with that. Like, I think insights engines will get a lot better and they will start to be able to serve up that context in ways that we, we can't possibly get through all that data. And that will be super exciting when that happens and that will be in service of all of that context that we, we want to hang on to. Yeah. Insights in context. That would be an interesting business to start. I think. No know. kidding. That would be great. Yeah, right. Totally. I think about, you know, doing the thousand interviews and I've given the story, said the story uh, before on the show. So I apologize to the listeners about the redundancy, but it's bare, It's worth uh, mentioning, you know, that I did a, a quant study relatively short. And then at the end I asked, please do me a favor and take a 15 second video or some period of time video of um, your environment. And one lady, I'll never forget it. She took a, a video and her, she had a number of kids and they were running around like chickens with their head cut off as my late <laughs> mother would say. And I was thinking to myself, you know, like that is such a, like all of a sudden it drew everything into question about the insights that she was providing in that survey for me. Right. Because anyway, you, you know what I mean? Like it feels like that's a really, Completely. totally. That's a really important, uh, the context of her providing that insight, which is, you know, moving, uh, in that case, it was potentially moving a multi-million dollar ad buy. So, you know, it seemed like maybe they'd want to know that. I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I did mobile ethnography, like I mentioned at Brain Juicer, where we had customers videoing various things, um, unboxing experiences, as I mentioned, and all sorts of things. And you saw the context there of their world, right? There was one really funny one I was doing on a, on a, a cookie that was being introduced. And the husband was more excited about the cookie than the wife and the wife was the one in the study and oh, it kept great. creeping into the video and taking it and she eventually had to hide the box from him but it was an interesting dynamic that you wanted to say and and the, the cookie was targeted to women but it was like well you know as they can be because it, it had a certain dietary benefit but <laughs> it was like yeah. who cares see this guy loves it why you know so yes, there's there's so many stories that can be told by by being in that environment. Obviously, the power of ethnography and the power of storytelling. Yeah, which kind of like to your where you started is is the power of AI because you know it's so hard to do that at scale. You know, to do that it analytics is hard to do at scale. scale. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And, it is the promise of it, and it w it will get there for sure, and it will change everything. I, I still firmly believe that even as it starts to 
be able to to go through a lot more of that data and comb through it and give give insights. I think humans are still going to be very very much in the mix with it um, in terms of building off of it as almost like you're you know how you've you've probably collaborated with another researcher before and you've kind of riffed off each other to come up with the ultimate viewpoint on something or the ultimate insight. I I believe that is how the relationship will move forward with AI. Oh, I completely agree. I, I this whole fear around AI removing jobs in at least in the next 50 years, maybe 50 years, but not in the 20 years, uh, at least not, not from my vantage point. It's all about partnership. I like your augmented intelligence point yeah. of view. Yeah, I agree. I, ju I just don't see that happening. So yeah. So on a future look, how are we going to be different as an industry in five years? Oh, man. Uh, well, let me get my AI together and I'll tell you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Where's my predictive analytics? Uh. I will give you one viewpoint I've been thinking a lot about, and this is because I am in technology now and, and more so in this space, but I think UX research and market research are going to morph because I'm already seeing, um, you know, in the realm of usability and user experience, all of that research, I'm already seeing a lot of researchers in that space saying, God, we need to understand more about the market and we need to do more upfront qual. And we need, you know, and then when I was at IIEX, they had several sessions on usability, which was pretty funny because some of us from the team went to that uh to that conference and they said, wow, they introduced usability like it was a new technique. <laughs> and, and so I think it's pushing into the realm of market research to say, hey, nothing's stopping you from wanting to dig deeper into the online experiences of your customers, even though you might be at the brand level, right? So I think we're going to see all of this come together as one big realm of customer research. And I think it should because customers will engage with you all over the place. And why wouldn't you have one researcher or team of researchers looking across all of it from the market to the online experiences to everything else, kind of in a meaningful way that doesn't separate out user experience from market research? So we've kind of addressed this next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just to see. So if you were going <laughs> to create a company today servicing the industry, the insights industry specifically, what problem would you address? Yeah, I like your context one a lot. The, the other one, so this is one I've been thinking about for a while, and I don't know if it's controversial or not, but it's this whole idea of, is bias really a bad thing? The reason I say that is, you know, in research, we're constantly saying, you know, it can't be biased, got to be unbiased. And we all know that's, that's impossible. You know, you want an unbiased sample and this and the other. Well, the panel probably already has bias from a million different angles, right, that you've drawn from. And we know as humans, bias is inherent. Certainly there's bias you, you absolutely want to be careful of. It's anything that harms anyone. But so, in some cases, bias is to be learned from. Mm. And if it, if it exists, how might we learn from it and gain insights from the bias itself rather than treat it as something we just should either ignore or pretend we've kind of maximized it out of the equation. So, you know, a business to understand how we can work with bias rather than avoid or against it, I think could be really interesting to figure out, you know, even with that Google example, there's more going on there with how people are clicking on those CEO images. What is it? Is it purely gender bias or are there other things at play? What can be learned to unpack some of those elements that will help us better understand the, the role of bias? I would also argue in some cases, bias is not 
any different from having a hypothesis. Having a hypothesis means I have a point of view on something without all the data, <laughs> right? And I'm, I'm biased in a certain direction because I think this might be what's going to happen. And then I will go in to a study with that hypothesis and I, I will obviously look to see if it plays out. But we all know you're looking more for that than particular other things because that's where your mindset is. It's not a bad thing. It's, it's something we all do. But how might we think about or reframe the use of bias in a way that, that we can learn from it, we can improve the outcomes and, and treat it as something that uh, is kind of a part of the mix and not something that we just should avoid. Yeah, it would be fun. Like from a start perspective, it would be really fun and useful to think about you're familiar with Meyer Briggs, of course, or whatever personality yeah. profile thing, yeah. right? So, like for Jamin Brazel, what what biases do I or biases do I have in my life that I probably, honestly, just don't know about, right? Mm -hmm. um, that are just a function of culture and context, uh, and, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be a really interesting. I don't know how it would do that, but like that does seem like something AI could address. That would be a great Myers-Briggs. You're right, because then that's something you could you would know going into any future work. Okay, this is a mindset I'm coming in with, and now what do I do um, either to mitigate it or to, you know, in some ways celebrate it? Because, you know, it's a funny thing, too. I was reading a Harvard Business Review article recently that talked about how customers or, sorry, how employees get reviews. And, and so many times reviews are a negative experience because it focuses a lot on your weakness. You should be doing this. You should be doing more of that instead of, okay, let's celebrate what you're good at and find other things for you to do that you're really good, you know, that celebrate this thing that you're good at, right? So it's kind of that same idea. How could you take what might seem like a negative and say, well, there may be ways in which this could be extremely helpful with certain studies. Having this viewpoint could really make me the best researcher for this type of research, as opposed to, oh, you're biased in a certain direction and now you're not good for certain things. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, a, it's such an interesting point of view. I can pick on my grandfather here, uh, my late grandfather. So, uh, you know, I'll tread lightly. But my my point is that, you know, he grew up in a, you know, World War One two generation. And um, there was just a completely incorrect set of biases that were ingrained there not in a positive way i'm not saying he was like part of the you know some terrible group or anything like that but it was just mm -hmm. a different a really different you know he he didn't fit into the millennial culture how's that so um, <laughs> yeah right and 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 yet you know no malicious intent or anything along those lines it was just kind of like the framework that he understood in agreeing incorrectly uh and and so then you know the opportunity for him to get informed on that Hey, these are the things that, you know, you have inherent biases because you can oftentimes see them in other people, but they might not be able to see them themselves. Yeah. Um, right. And that's kind of the point is that this, um, it, it's hard to see the blind spots in ourselves. Uh, something like that could be really interesting. Sorry. Absolutely. About, sorry about this. Like, I totally wailed the conversation. No, no. But. And, and you know, what's interesting about your grandfather too, is that he might, his perspective who knows? His perspective might be getting smaller and smaller and smaller as millennials grow. So that may be a perspective that's also interesting to understand or potentially have in a certain study where there's there's another angle to things. You know what I mean? So Totally. Yeah, at a micro level and at a macro level, right? Yeah. You start seeing how that plays out. That's so interesting. All right. My, yeah. last, my last question. Um, what is your personal motto? 
Um, I guess the one that comes closest to encapsulating me is always be prepared. (laughs) I learned that a long time ago from my father who approached everything with a lot of preparation and thoughtfulness. Um, he had a, he had a plan for everything and it, it really served me well of just having some level of preparation is I think sometimes 90% of the job, 90% of the battle, whether you're reading, you know, secondary research ahead of a study, or you're just getting smart about an industry, or you're having a conversation with some stakeholders before you get started with something, you've got a good jumping off point that means you're not, you're not kind of just going shooting from the hip in many cases. And I'm someone who likes to have a level of preparation. So, and, and it's ironic because in some ways AI is, is very much about that. Building models is very much about a, a tremendous amount of preparation going into any kind of work that you're then going to do with it. But um, yeah, that's, that's kind of my thing. I, I like to be prepared. I love that. I got to, I got to end on two stories to that point. I, a good friend of mine, Jennifer Crawford, she took a bet on me when we and uh, Decipher in the early days. She's the owner of a New York-based research company called Research Solutions, and I remember I co-pitched her with her uh, to Meredith about an online diary, something you're really familiar with. And in that pitch, she came in with a folder that was about a quarter inch thick of pe- preparation. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff in it, right? Um, prepare about the about the uh, meeting and so we left after 45 minutes I don't even know if we actually opened maybe we got through two or three pages in the in the binder but or the the folder and the customers only time I've ever heard this he actually said I want to thank you so much for being so well prepared to this to this meeting um, and we won the business I mean it was like a windfall for for both of the firms um, yeah it was spectacular Anyway, sorry about my reminiscing, but preparation, as it turns out, I think is really important. Oh, and the second one I want to mention is Havas Media. So Havas Media, which is a big company, um, they're inundated with papers about states of industries, et cetera, et cetera. And they actually subscribe to an AI-based system, which does the processing so that they can reduce all this vats of information into a, a query string and pull out the pieces that are relevant and say that they have 99% coverage uh, on the on their content. So anyway, yeah, like the preparation point. Thanks so much for sharing that. My guest today has been Ellen uh, Colster. Sorry about that hiccup. Ellen Colster, design principal at IBMQ. Thank you, Ellen, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Thank you. It was lovely being here. Everyone else, this is in conjunction with the upcoming Next Conference. You have a couple weeks still to register. You can find out information online, of course, happymr.com slash next2019, as well as Google Next. It's located in Chicago, June 12th and 13th, I believe. It's going to be a wonderful event. Hope to see you there. As always, love your screenshots, feedback, share this. It's appreciated. Have a great rest of your day.